Welcome, and thank you for joining us for a conversation about the history and future of the Institute for Signifying Scriptures. In this five-part series of podcast conversations, we're speaking with people who've been connected to the African Americans in the Bible Conference and the Institute for Signifying Scriptures over the past 25 years. And we've asked them to reflect on that involvement in the intellectual project the Institute reflects. In this conversation in particular, we discussed the African-Americans and the Bible conference that took place uh, about 25 years ago. We've asked three distinguished guests, Greg Gundiker, Tatshan Binilu, and Velma Love to reflect on the conference and what it meant. These guests will introduce themselves further in our episode today. My name is Tatshan Liu, and I teach at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. I'm honored to have two amazing scholars, friends, with me to talk about a historical project, African Americans and the Bible. Colleagues, may I ask you to introduce yourselves? I'm Velma Love. I'm the director of the Doctor of Ministry program at the Interdenominational Theological Center in Atlanta, Georgia, where I am also an associate professor for interdisciplinary studies. Hi, I'm Gray Gundaker, and I am a senior lecturer in anthropology and education and applied anthropology at Teachers College, Columbia University, which is my retirement job after a 30-year stint at William & Mary in American Studies. Excellent. It's great to have you with me today. Uh, we have all agreed to forego all the formalities and titles and address each other by first name. So, uh, Gray and Velma, can you tell me how you became involved with this conference uh, in New York City in April 1999? In 1999, I was a Master's of Divinity student studying with Vesit Wimbush at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Um, I think actually that same semester we had a, we were part of a seminar. African Americans in the Bible seminar. It was very exciting, and uh, I just recall lots of people being present, lots of high energy, um, and it was great to meet um, senior scholars in the field. It was where I first met Greg Gundaker and Jacob Olupono, who became my mentors and our friends, and so just I have really fun memories of that time. What about you, Gray? There used to be a place called Labyrinth Books that was near Columbia on 16th Street. And um, my dissertation had been published as a book in 1998. And I got a lovely letter from Vincent Wimbush saying, I picked up your book in this bookstore. <laughs> and would you like to come to this project? And so... Uh, from there, I got to meet Velma and other people who were part of the project. Oh, that's that's great. I know Velma started as a student of, uh, of Vincent's, but now both of you have been collaborating with uh, Vincent for a long, long time. But I'm curious, how did Vincent pitch this project to you, whether in the classroom or in that letter? I mean, what did he say? <laughs> because it's such a big project. Well, how, well, how did he pitch it to you? It goes back to my, my first love, which was I, I was uh, in undergraduate uh, study. I did undergraduate work in sociology, and I loved doing field work. So it was an opportunity then to engage in this field work interview um, project 
uh, asking African-American people what the Bible meant to them. So that's how it started for me. And I had always been interested in the stories that people tell. I was particularly interested in Bible studies, Bible stories, because I grew up in a religious household. My grandfather always prayed, um, did the family prayer on Sundays, and always told Bible stories. So this was like a, just a part of my soul. So when I had an opportunity to study uh, with Vincent Wimbush and realized uh, the project, I, you know, it just ignited some energy. He didn't even have to sell it to me. I was like, can I, you know, I was raising my hand to be part of it. Um, and so that, that enthusiasm for a story, a sacred story, has, has continued and really uh, just paved the way for my academic career. I, w I graduated from my PhD in 1997. I didn't even know this project was, was going on. Otherwise, I would have raised my hand too and say, let me in. But uh, Gray, what about you? How did, how did Vincent pitch it to you? I was fascinated by many things, but going back into school quite late, I wanted to work in a world that was somewhat familiar, but also not familiar. And because I had grown up in the segregated South, um, in uh, my grandmother's kitchen, which was one of the places where members of the Black community and the white community had unusual exchanges, I didn't realize how unusual for their time they were um, until I was grown up. But um, for example, my babysitter who had worked with my grandmother at a textile mill and looked after me every day, took me to her church where she was the mother of the Baptist church and to meet a lot of people in, in the neighborhood when I was a child, you know, up until I was probably 11 or 12 and we moved away and also practiced on me certain forms of biblical moral, moral instruction that involved uh, reading passages that pertain to what I should not be doing um, that should notice. So um, I, I, I also, um, in studying education, became very concerned about literacies and some of the, the theories that were going around in the 80s and early 90s, such as the idea that there were no writing systems in West and West Central Africa, and that this sort of uh, narrative actually fed into to school saying um, this was why some kids had trouble in school. And this made absolutely no sense to me. And Again, by chance, I, I took a course with an art historian, Robert Ferris Thompson, um, at Yale, where I ended up. And he said, well, he, here's the Vi syllabary, and here's this other African writing system, and went on through a bunch of these. Because I was visual and interested in signs and symbols of all kinds, as I began to just look around my hometown of Chattanooga, Tennessee, I saw a lot of inscriptions that were symbolic uh, and also alternative forms of writing that were put next to Roman script writing. And so these plainly showed that the people doing them could write 
and read English perfectly well and chose to be doing something else um, because more needed to be said. And so um, a lot of these um, related also to um, material practices that were not part of the canon of what literacy is is supposed to be in the schools, like um, things, practices, this is historical. I didn't meet anyone who did this, but I began to look back in time um, using passages of the, the Bible, um, reading them aloud, then burning the text, and then drinking the text, which is a, a practice that Muslims in West Africa to this day use as part of a healing um, complex. And so there were other things of that nature that created um, bridges between the Bible and older practices, um, some of which were Muslim and and some of which, all of which were rooted in their very specific community. So um, I began to just travel and, and, and talk to people and um, try to learn more. Uh, that was an amazing book. Uh, if you have not read it, or you should tell us the name of that book that impressed uh, Vincent so much. Well, I, I, I didn't name it. One of my colleagues, thank goodness, came up with a name. I was stumped. It, it's called Signs of Diaspora, Diaspora of Signs. And so uh, I thought that pretty well captured the idea that, that these signs were, were mobile. And um, in, indeed, they in various permutations, you can find versions in Brazil, Cuba, throughout the Black Atlantic world, as well as um, ways that that Africans have used the Bible and incorporated the Bible into other kinds of, you know, artistic and and verbal um, systems. Yeah, it's it's interesting that both Velma and Gray, both of you have. Uh interest and practice few work in anthropology right but the conferences involves a lot more than that it also involves people in history in literature in art were you surprised by its ambitious nature i remember getting the book when it came out in print it's gigantic i remember jokingly calling it a phone book uh were you surprised by how ambitious this project is I actually, I guess I was not surprised because at that point, I had not been indoctrinated into the academic world. So I didn't know how unusual this was. I just thought, oh, this is, this is what you do. I mean, you know, this is, <laughs> this is how it is. But I later learned that, oh, no, that, that was very uh, unique and, and, and unusual, uh, just the range and scope of scholars who are present is what made it so uh, exciting. And, you know, all of these people converged uh, on Union Theological Seminary and spilled over to Columbia University. And, you know, we had venues all over the neighborhood. And, um, you know, then I learned that this is not the norm. This is not seminary life. This is a moment of history, history in the making. Delma, if I remember right, you were organizing an awful lot of all of that too. We wouldn't have had such a feast to go to if you you hadn't coordinated. Yeah, right. I was one of the coordinators, and that was fascinating as well because people were saying, asking, 
uh, there's the members like, where did you find these students? Like the students actually ran the conference. Mm-hmm. So my colleagues and I, we just, you know, we just took it on and, and we sort of, it was a birthing for us. Well, you were an expert in doing field work. I imagine you did field work on the restaurants and get everything ready on the ground, right? So, Gray, what about you? Were you surprised by how ambitious this project was or this conference was? Well, like like Velma, I didn't know much of anything about academic life. I knew that I had luckily just walked into a whole university education um, and and that if I could just keep going and, and go to everything, I would, I mean, I just learned an overwhelming amount and only just wanted to hear the next talk by each one of those people. Um, so the the book, uh, you know, was it was phenomenal, but I didn't again, I didn't realize what I knew that it was important right away when the book arrived in into my office, students started gathering around, they would see it on the shelf and it, it became, uh, you know, in circulation right away because there was nothing comparable to that at all. As I said, I was not at, uh, present at the conference. So what did you remember most about it now, almost 25 years later? Thinking back, what were the highlights of the conference for you? Mm, you know, I think the highlight for me um, was actually presenting. So I presented with with another with a colleague, and we did this very kind of uh, multimedia artistic presentation, uh, and we were uh, just excited to have the space to do that. It was a recognition of the way that uh, Vincent Wimbush um, involved students in the work. So we had ownership in the work. We had ownership of the conference. And that, that actually, I guess, is what I remember remember most. I mean, even today, as I work with students and I work in that same vein, I remember that, oh, when I worked with Wimbush, he always allowed students space. Uh, even Even though students were trying to find their way or we were trying to find our way. Uh, there was space for us to do that. And so it, it shaped me in such a way that I continue uh, in that vein as I work with of, uh, graduate students today. So it was not yet a film, right? I know then you make a film, but uh, in the in the conference, it was a multimedia, but uh, it's not a... Did you show a film or at least a film clip? Well, you know, the film, we actually, actually did a film later uh, a document right, right. With, um, John Jackson, who was yeah. at Columbia University at the time, an anthropologist. Uh, he and I teamed up, and we actually did a film. Vincent Wimbush was the executive producer, and we were the producers. And it was, <laughs> was African Americans in the Bible, and we actually went around the country uh, interviewing people and capturing sort of visual representations of Bible and culture. It was really uh, thrilling. It was exciting. It was a massive amount of work, but I didn't even know. I didn't even think of it as work because it was uh, such uh, what I should I say creative and enjoyable experience. But that little film was one of my um, exams, one of my field exams mm-hmm. later in the doctoral program. 
That's one way for it. Oh, that. <laughs> yes. What did you remember about the conference, Gray? Well, I remember especially because of, you know, having just left being a visual arts person like two years. Well, actually, it was more years by the time of the conference, but still a fairly small window. And, and I was depressed by how completely um, text-based the academy turned out to be, unless you were actually in a discipline like music or history of art or something where your subject matter was um, in other media. So I was just blown away with the, the visual. I mean, not just the dance performances and the singing and ritual performances and but also um people who who were uh circulating who were doing such wide uh arrays of work so i i remember talking with a gentleman who i i don't know if he presented or not but he was working with a, a prison arts program and he was involved with a religious based ngo but you know he had he had um, a great deal to say about the people how he worked with were also interpreting African Americans in the Bible from their own personal experience. So you know you could sort of see that this was also the center of a much wider web of activity and brought together people. Not e all, the presenters were were wildly diverse in, in their orientation to the Bible. Um, but but I think one of the things that really st stood out to me and, and one of the, the most powerful things about Black Atlantic arts to me all along is that I was never comfortable with the division among the arts. I mean, I know that some people are better singers and some are better painters, and but you have to have all of those to make a, a total experience, immersion experience. And um, white people don't do that. They have the mm. proscenium with the, you know, stage with the piano on it and the audience in the dark and nobody's supposed to say anything or do anything. And that is not African-Americans in the Bible um, for the most part. So I, I was also just very much energized by people who had come up in this tradition that is multimedia and thus gives you many more ways to try to understand um, profound ideas and, and moral values. Uh, that's wonderful. Oh, you talked about that you were not quote unquote disciplined straightly in whatever academic departments that you can think of. So now you have both of you have been in the academy for many years now. Uh, what do you think this project, what difference has it made? Well, the project made a huge difference for me. When I started seminary, I was on an ordination track with the United Methodist Church, and I quickly realized that my that 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 was not a fit, and mm -hmm. that my that there was some other pathway opening up for me. And it was while I was in, in seminary working with the African-Americans and the Bible Project that I became aware of other sacred texts. And so I began to explore divination. And that came about, actually, I think after one of our meetings, Gray, 
I said, oh, I, I haven't done field work in so long. I don't know if I, I can even, I, I'm not comfortable. I don't know how to do this. And she said, let's walk up to 125th Street, 125th and Broadway. We walked up there. We walked into a botanical. And she said, this is how I do field work. And she just started a conversation with the shop owner. And I am in amazement both at how she's guiding the conversation and and the content of the conversation because I didn't know anything about the Orisha tradition or Ifa. And this botanical owner is pointing out the soaps and all of the all of the tools and the ritual tools and you know, and he looked at me and he said, You think too hard. And, you know, why why are you not saying anything? I'm I said, I don't know what to say. I mean, I am just blown away. And I said, Well, what do you mean I think too hard? And and he said, I can read your aura. Now I didn't know any of this. Um, and I I said, Okay, well then what do you see? And he said, You you need cleansing. So he gave me a a recipe. Uh, now I'm just so fascinated that I said, "Okay, I'll do this. I'll, I'll get the herbs. I'll I'll make the solution. I'll use it in the shower." He said, "Come back in a week." I did all of that. I came back in a week, and he looked at me and he said, "You are beautiful." <laughs> oh, that's so nice. So that stimulated my imagination. I, I think Gray and I went to lunch that day, and she told me about Oyutunji Village and. Uh, I was also going to be in South Carolina, so I went to Oyutunji Village, and I asked them, this is how much I knew, I asked them, how did they use the Bible? I didn't even, I didn't even know about the Odu, and this, one of the priests, Chief Ajamu, spent three hours educating me about the Holy Odu and divination as a way of accessing the sacred text. And I was so fascinated that I, I went back to school. I enrolled in an oral history class at Columbia University. And the first assignment was to do a life story interview. I flew back to South Carolina and I did my life story interview with Chief Ajamu. And that started my work on the sacred text of the Odu, which mm -hmm. became my dissertation project. I can I can hear so many overlaps between your work and Gray's work. It's actually quite quite amazing. Uh, so you have talked about how this project has meant for your own work in many ways. Uh, can you or can you Gray help us to think a little bit about how this project has influenced the field, whether the field is in the study of the Bible or in the study of African American traditions and cultures. So besides how it influenced your own work, uh, what about the field at large? I am afraid that you are asking the wrong person because I I think a lot of the 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 influence has been with more with people who who are in touch in the religious studies orbit, and also um, it certainly flowed into the later projects that. Wimbush did, um, which I was privileged to be a part of over a good many years. Um, but I feel like uh, also he laid out 
challenges that, as far as I know, have not really been taken up again, um, which is why I was sort of saying, oops, let me hand this one back off to <laughs> Velma, who's better acquainted, because I'm hoping um, that I just missed this. But what I really feel like is that academia has sort of gone its usual way of, uh, you know, one little project and one little paper on it. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> but someday I'm I'm retired. You know that's what <laughs> get a little mouthy when we get sprung out of the out of the fence. So let me let me take a stab at that. Um, you know, as excited as we were at Union about Wimbush's work, we later learned that he wasn't popular everywhere. Then that 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 work was a challenge. It was a challenge to the institution of the Society of Biblical Literature. But he made a mark and he had a following. And so he produced students who worked in that same vein. So when Vincent became the president of the Society of Biblical Literature and gave his address, we were all off. It's a little core group of us who was sitting together. We were just cheering. We, we were the cheering squad. Um, and it was, his address was really um, kind of a radical call for change. And he called for not a society of biblical literature, but a society for the study of sacred texts to expand the playing field. Uh, that hasn't happened. That, that, that never happened. But, but the subversive work um, has continued. So his work as the... Um, founder of the Institute for um, Signifying Scriptures, and then the students who have continued to work with him uh, in that way, I think, have had profound impact um, mm. in and out of the, of the academy. Yeah. So I, I have never had the privilege to study with Vincent, but if I'm understanding correctly, when he talk about text, it's also not just written text, right? Because everything has texture. I, I love his use of the word texture. So right. when you talk about that, you really are expanding the field in in many, many different ways. Exactly, exactly. And I'm always um, a little reticent uh, about introducing the, his work to my students um, in the seminary setting. And I'm always pleasantly surprised with the response that I get. Mm. They uh, they get it. They understand. Um, and I show the address of the SBL address um, that he he made, uh, the presidential address. I uh, asked them to view that, and we get in a conversation. And I said, "Well, what was the takeaway?" And the, I always um, remember the student who said. I'm really not sure what he was saying, <laughs> but I but I know but I know this I know that he was getting them told. <laughs> See, so she picked up was th this is a critique that he was calling for change, mm. and that is where that is an entry point then mm. um, for the students. And so the job where I am presently, I was actually recruited because. Um, I had to work with Vincent Wimbush, and they wanted to introduce a new course 
called uh, Scripturalization and Signifying the Bible and U.S. Civic Religion. And so, uh, yeah, I, that, that's just kind of, it follows me <laughs> where I go. Well, for me, I always thought that Vincent's work helped me to think about Scripture as part of not only religion, but also of culture. So his work really tried to, to blur these lines between religion and culture. And the effect on me personally is that, um, you know, as a person of color, my work has gone a lot closer to ethnic study. And I imagine for everybody in the USA, his work actually can push people who are in religion to begin to think about their work as part of American studies at large. So having said that, uh, what do you think Vincent's work has done for uh, people in African-American studies? Is the influence being felt there at all? Because his work now really is way beyond the narrow scope of religion as traditionally defined. Yeah, I think it has had profound uh, impact. And it is interdisciplinary work because it does engage the social sciences, it engages history, it engages literature. And recently, well, I guess a couple of years ago, during, during COVID, we uh, participated in a visual symposium um, that was hosted by Emory University. And it was, it was actually phenomenal. That, you know, it was this digital exhibition and a seminar and that project. So now it, it's engaged the libraries because the, the librarians were talking about, oh, this is, you know, this is, this is wonderful. This gives us an opportunity to make the library more relevant for, for people. It's not just a place now that archives the books. Well, so, so in that sense, I think the work has had um, broad and far-reaching impact in a number of disciplines. Um, just starting, going back to the, the initial conference and the publication of the book, of African Americans and the Bible book, and then if you look at at the contributors there, you see contributions from a number of different disciplines. Those people then have continued that work. And so while, while maybe SBL didn't change, or didn't change in the way that we would like to see it change, I think the work has been a catalyst for, for change in in a, you know, in a much larger way uh, in various uh, disciplines. Yeah, of course, the sad thing is, you know, the disciplinary structure that both of you have talked about, uh, it also might have uh, limited its influence. A lot of people may see the name and thought, oh, this is a New Testament scholar or religion scholar, and so they just uh, would not take the time to, to look into it. But Gray, what about you personally speaking? How is uh, your interaction with this project, African Americans in the Bible, uh, how has that influenced your personal work? You know, now we have to spend some time talking about the larger field. Well, Velma has talked about her personal work already. What about you? Well, it had a profound effect um, on me personally, um, just by having Vincent's vote of confidence when I was a terrified new graduate. Um, and 
I really was considered kind of crazy um, within and still am in me, the things that I paid attention to, um, to be uh, kind of blunt about it. I, I starting out in as, as a, a person who was in middle class and working class, one foot in each. And then my mother went off to the Episcopalians during the civil rights movement in the South. So there were different, different religious, I guess, windows. But I, I really always gravitate toward people who are using multiple media and multiple streams of experience. And this is often not what the upper academy um, looks at. You know, so in anthropology, if you find practices discussed, they may be othered, not considered to be um, really integral to development of the person, which in fact they are. Um, it, it, the converse is true that, that cutting off different ways of communicating, different ways of expressing, all of these are limiting the potentials of the self and the religious experiences. And you know, so just to go back to the to divination, I later became more involved, mostly with be, having diviners look over my case and try to decide what what I should do or what to do with me. It certainly helped open me to all of those things, and it also, I mean, he just gave me uh, confidence to stick to my guns for the rest of my career and say. No, I really don't want to become the anthropological version of the SBL, which is whatever that may be, which is, I, I think, a, a very text-anchored way of looking at the world, text-mediated. And, and I don't even understand text in the same way that I think I would have. You know, I mean, one of the people that I first learned about... Uh, that got me into to trying to learn more about ways of writing was a gentleman named J.B. Murray who um, wrote in the Unknown Tongue, which is that he wrote a, a kind of verbal glossolalia that he used in healing practices. Mm. And so um, people like that became popular in the art world, but were really marginalized as exotic. Um, and that was part of creating a, a market for them. So I've been in a, a kind of hope to be a thorn in their side for quite a long time, saying that, you know, no, this is deeply felt, deeply thought through, and efficacious healing. Mm. It worked. It, it made people feel better. He could pull the negativity out of people's bodies. And if you you either think that's possible or you don't. <laughs> And so um, I do, and and so that puts me at at odds to some degree. And I I trace it all the way back to African Americans in the Bible. But I could stand up in a bunch of academics and say, no, you know, if you're in a context where this is the appropriate way to handle the situation, it it's going to work for the participants, and we have to be very take very seriously. Yeah, so the the project really challenged the uh, conventional, traditional structure of knowledge production in 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 many different ways. 
I can think about myself. Uh, I did this <laughs> compared to the African Americans and the Bible is a joke. I had this volume called Asian Americans and the Bible. Uh, is this like maybe not even one fifth of the thickness of the of the of the phone book that uh, Vincent has produced? It came out in two thousand two. And because of that, you know, Union organized this conference for some of the people contributed to my volume and some of the people contributed to African-Americans in the Bible to have a conversation at Union. And it was at that conference that I really begin to, and some other people begin to realize uh, our work as minoritized people often done vis-a-vis the work of the dominant white culture. Uh, why don't we stop that? Why don't we talk to one another instead? Right? So we begin to uh, talk about minoritized criticism in, in a very, very different way. So the structure is completely changed because, because of that project. Uh, we talk about that book. Uh, both of you have, have an essay in it. Uh, Valmas is the, if I remember correctly, is actually the very first essay, right? Under the section called pretext. And Grace is in a different section called context. Now that it's 25 years later, how would you do the essay differently, do you think? Great <laughs> oh, <my> question. <laughs> you know, at the time that I wrote the essay, I, I was a student, and so, so the database is the work of, the, of my colleagues uh, in the class. And someone, people were congratulating me. Oh, you're the first chapter you're the first essay in the book, and I didn't. I didn't think it was significant. Well, they all do, but I did <laughs> <laughs> at the time. But um, if I were going to write now, I think I would uh, actually center on something that you just said, and that is about the epistemology. What counts as knowledge? Mm -hmm. What really counts as knowledge? You know, and how can we be? Uh, equitable, how can we claim space for knowledge production of cultures that have been uh, that are borderline the cultures? How do we claim that space? And some of the work that I've been doing since then um, is, is, in that, is in that space. For example, I uh, studied with Maladoma Somme from Burkina Faso, West Africa. He, he taught divination to people in the U.S. Mm. So I wanted to be fascinated uh, about the process of divination. I thought, here's an opportunity to learn the Dagara medicine wheel divination process. So I studied with him for a year, became certified as a diviner, and mm. actually worked with clients um, on the medicine wheel and, and the shells and the symbols and the narrative that is produced. It is absolutely fascinating work. It's uh, an African knowledge system that is not recognized in academic studies. Right? Mm -hmm. So I think if I were going to write uh, an essay today, I would expand it um, and use the concept of Bible to refer to more than the engagement of the Christian scriptures. That would be amazing. You, you, yeah. you can still write it now. I can still uh, write it. I could. Yeah. Oh, that first essay on ethnography, certainly, I think, looking back, feed into the one of the earlier projects that Vincent does in the Institute for Signifying Scripture, right? The, the ethnology project, 
that you and I are both uh, involved in that came out in the book called Miss Reading America. So that kind of ethnographical work, ethnological work, certainly I can see, I can see traces of that. Mm-hmm. What about you, Gray? This amazing essay about Bible as an at the threshold reading performance and the blessed space. I had a, a second track of research, um, basically that the faculty members involved with literacies fought with each other. So I hid and went back to art and and uh, got to know people who made biblical and and. Uh, religious, but more beyond biblical, I would say, um, spaces in their in their yards, um, many of which contained also political commentary, where the Bible and other forms would be used to to talk about or express about injustice um, and the past and uh, all kinds of of things that were distinct for each person and yet called upon a a repertoire, a symbolic repertoire that was partly biblical and partly from from different African streams of of knowledge. And I don't know, I I don't know if I what I I was very inspired by what you just said, Velma, and, and I I think divination is you know, I mean, if we had it all over to do over again, I wouldn't do anything different for that book at that time. But I wish there would be another one. <laughs> and I would love to. The first time, or, well, one of the first times that uh, anyone did divination with me that I knew it was it as divination. Um, actually, my babysitter, who I mentioned, did the dream books with us every week. Um and that's div- divination. Who, who, who did you dream of? And then you have a number. And uh, for people who play the numbers, uh, that would be a d- divining system. But um, I've become really interested how in Arabic script, the script itself is a line. Um, and this is something that continu- that goes into... Uh, certain contexts in the Black Americas. Oh, but I was going to say oh, the divination occasion was um, divining with the Bible where a uh, healer looked at me and said, you, do- you don't look very good. <laughs> you don't look very good at all. This gentleman was named Bishop Washington Harris, and he had a large compound in Memphis. Uh, and, and he said, uh, well, let's check up on you. And um, he he cut the Bible with scissors, which is what I mean. You don't cut the pages. You have a scissor, and you you let the scissors point to a particular passage on a particular page that you just cut your hand in and come up with. And he never told me what the passage said, but he gave me a great um, array of herbs and other things to have a spiritual cleansing bath. And then he said. Just don't listen to those people, whoever those people are that are making you feel that way, which were the Yale faculty. (laughs) 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 So that was another one of those empowering moments. So I took it very seriously. Wow. Of course, divination is in the Bible, right? Uh, People don't pay attention to it. It's a language, a culture that is not recognized. 
but what is what is challenging, I think, is something that both of you have talked about. That it seems like the academy loves to categorize things, right? They love to have buckets so they can put this in this bucket, that in that bucket, and it seems like the Africans in the Bible project is is really messing that up, uh, breaking open these buckets and. In fact, when I look at that book, uh, you know, I was just a new PhD. I look at these names. I have no idea who these people were, right? I can only recognize the people who work on the Bible. Who are all these people? I don't recognize them precisely because of that. So what do you think it would take to change that? I think that there is um, a movement afoot uh, in the academy for decolonizing, uh, decolonizing research in decolonizing pedagogies and so that decolonizing is a buzzword nowadays and I think it mm -hmm. came out with the recognition that oh there's another body of knowledge that we are overlooking that's just being totally dismissed there is no space for and individual uh, scholars in their own subversive ways are creating spaces for that decolonization to happen. And it's not always visible, but you know, professors have autonomy in the classroom. And so it, the message is embedded then in the way the curriculum and the way the courses are, are designed. So at, at ITC, which ITC, the Interdenominational Theological Center, has always been known for its Afrocentric approach. So it's Afrocentric philosophy. So the Docs of Ministry program now has become a pilot for uh, theological education that is based on uh, design justice, uh, human-centered design, um, Afrocentric philosophy, and engaged learning, um, situational learning, so outside of the classroom. So, so that is uh, an example then of how these um, restrictive uh, categories and borders are being uh, penetrated. I mean, as I think it's probably happening um, on a larger scale than we actually realize, but we live in a moment of change. I mean, like the old way, it can't hold. It, it, the old structures are, are crumbling. People our theological schools are declining, the enrollment is declining. The schools that are surviving are reinventing themselves and expanding their scope. Mm. I mean, by, you know, people are leaving organized religion because of the rigidity of the boundaries. And so the spiritual communities that are evolving are, are evolving in different uh, geographies and different uh, gatherings of people. But I think all of those are, are great. I use your terminology, they are signs and symbols <laughs> of, of, this, of this change that, um, that we, you know, we, we are a part of. Signs of diaspora, even this movement may be spreading out and um, spreading yeah. out all over the place. Uh, nice, nice. There's a funny recurring phrase that 
no anthropologist has ever seen a category they didn't want to deconstruct. (laughs) (laughs) They're all that they're all all of them are binders, but um, it highlights, as did African Americans and the Bible and the work that you're doing, Velma. I that categories and enforcing categories is the heart of Eurocentrism. This is why decolonizing is going to have to go out of this, you know, but, but um, I mean, people, a lot of the, the tensions that we're feeling right now in the, in, in American society are, are people who are, are not uh, comfortable with multiple meanings or ambiguities. And um, I think, you know, white people, Eventually, I grew up early on knowing white people who started listening obsessively to jazz. I mean, that was one of the things that got through to some white people because um, there is is constantly play with and against any kind of a boundary. And then if you go and you study um, African art, as I've been lucky to do a little bit, you look at, say, Cuba raffia cloth or any kind of West central african textile you just see mapped out right for you we will not let these category boxes stand there's an interruption to just about every one of them and it's a map of a way of living and and so you know the more i think the more um that we have leadership um coming from outside the white people um to put it bluntly i mean i just i just well i just think that it's how we're brought up and and i i think i was a little bit more flexible maybe because art people tend to be um more skeptical you know because we're just sort of taught to break boundaries or break through a line or or whatever it is as a as a practice but um it's it's very threatening to people to tell them that they can't rely on the world they thought they knew and so you either have to think well anything is better than this let's try it i mean i, I that's not fair quite but i think that that it's in bad enough shape at the moment where we should be embracing the flexibility to explore more broadly um, different ways of looking at things and appreciating things. And so African-Americans and the Bible was a real early demonstration of the richness of that. Mm. Excellent. That's a really hopeful and encouraging note for us to end. Uh, thank you so much. I really enjoy this conversation. And But as you know, right, something big is coming up. It's going to be the 25th anniversary of this project, African African-Americans and the Bible which also will be the 20th anniversary of the Institute for Signifying Scripture. And there will be a conference in Atlanta, Georgia in April, the 11th to the 13th. And I'm sure that I will see both of you there. Thank you for joining us for this conversation about African-Americans in the Bible. For more information or other episodes in this series, please visit the Institute for Signifying Scripture's website, signifyingscriptures.org. Thank you.